0: Welcome to the C-Suite Podcast. I'm Russell Goldsmith. Joining me uh, this time to discuss the topic of social media's role in crisis communications, I have the CIPR's current president and MD of Pinchpoint Communications, Sarah Pinch. Um, we also have Stephen Humphreys, who has been Director of Communications at the Food Standards Agency since 2012, and Andrew Vincent, who is Associate Partner at Instinctive Partners in their Corporate Affairs team. Now, later in the show, I've also got an interview to play you that I recorded at the social media panel's recent Storytelling Hack Day. Um, so lots to, uh, lots to get through today. We're all gathered here today to is, uh, is discuss social media's role in crisis communications. Um, Now, it's quite timely because obviously in the last few weeks, we've seen a number of cases that uh, that have been spoken about, obviously, across um, social and and traditional uh, media. Um, Firstly, there was Thomas Cook. Uh, Now, in that situation after a UK inquest last month, um, it was concluded that the holiday company had breached its duty of care in relation to the tragedy from 2006 when two children aged just six and seven died from carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, it was from a 40 boiler while on holiday. And I should say, I did approach Pe- uh, Peter uh, Fankhauser, Thomas Cook's current CEO, to join today's show. But um, uh, in fairness, they- I did get a message back from them, but uh, from his business assistant, uh, but they declined the opportunity to uh, to come along because of his diary commitments. Um, also, in the last two weeks, uh, we've seen FIFA um, uh, suffer the- from the uh, FBI's investigation into widespread corruption uh, within the world's uh, football governing body. And then just in the last few days, the, the awful incident um, you know, at Merling Entertainment owned of Orton Towers following the terrible crash uh, on their Smiler roll, uh, roller coaster, resulting in a 17-year-old girl, um, as we found out um, at the start this week, was injured in the crash having her leg amputated. So, And, and obviously there's others uh, sustaining some serious injuries there. So just horrible circumstances for all those involved. Obviously there's some very sensitive uh, issues um, in two of those examples in particular. What, what I wanted to get your opinions on really is how each of those organisations have handled these issues in the last few weeks but obviously, given the topic of, of today and and and, uh, and and this series of podcasts, looking at their social media presence in in particular. So, just as an example, uh, yesterday I was looking at the Orton House Facebook page, which has over one point three million likes, and as you can imagine, it's been flooded with comments. Uh, comments, um, Andrew, let's let's start with you. What what's your uh, what's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think um, <clears throat> to be honest, uh, to sort of putting all three together, it's it's a it's a really good way of comparing. Uh, not only how these organisations reacted specifically to these incidents, but also it does shine a light into um, perhaps sort of wider issues of corporate governance and the way that those businesses choose to behave more generally. I think with Alton Towers, I think they there's a pretty wide consensus that their response has been, been very good. I looked at the Facebook page just a, an hour or so before uh, coming to this recording today, and, you know, they've got lots of positive comments from consumers saying um, you know all the best to the staff Alton Towers has handled this the best they can with the utmost of decency and they wouldn't be getting those comments if there wasn't actually a genuine sense that they had done the right thing by being so proactive Their chief exec stepped forward you know has led from the front has undertaken difficult media interviews and has there's been no sort of you know question of whose fault is it irrespective of whose fault it is right now it's their responsibility and they've reacted accordingly If you contrast that with the Thomas Cook situation, you know, there you had this this very sad spectacle of a company really just hiding behind its lawyers and demonstrating no evidence of having an ethical approach in dealing with the situation and being on the back foot and then trying to remedy the situation by, you know, making a donation to a charity completely independent of what the family might have wished. So a real contrast in ethics there. And then with FIFA. Uh, I think uh, no amount of uh, no amount of crisis communications could could help them there. I think, you know, there the, the clearly are deep issues. When the FBI gets involved, then, you know, you're going to need more than a crisis manual yeah, to get through that one. Yeah. St-
0: Stephen, any any thoughts across, across them at all?
1: The other thing I think that's
2: emerged for me is the speed of response, and that's where I think social media has changed the dynamic. The crises have always required a rapid response, but almost that now becomes a matter of minutes rather than hours. And it was interesting to know at one point, I think FIFA were up to about 8,000 Twitter comments or questions on their feed um, and absolutely no response or statement. And contrast that with Andrew, what Andrew was saying about Merlin, who, um, in terms of their communications response, have been very proactive Mm. and dealing rapidly with things. And it's that being responsive to that changing environment is, I think, what's key. Yeah. Sarah,
0: is it, do you have any views on that? I it think at
3: all? it'd be really interesting when it's appropriate to go, particularly back to Thomas Cook and to Merlin, and find out where their communication sits within an organisation. Mm. Because having worked in the NHS and in public transport, you know, both when things go wrong, they tend to be of an emotional and a mm. very difficult nature. And being able to influence the CEO is the only way that I think we see some of these very fleet of foot and personable comments, you know, putting your public statement on Twitter is okay, but then you need to follow that up yeah. with some kind of personality. Yeah. And I think you can only get that if you've got devolved responsibility to the people that are handling that. And that, in my opinion, comes from a very close relationship between communications and the CEO and communications and the lawyers, yeah. which hopefully you've formed in peacetime, so that when things do go wrong, actually, you've got really good working relationships, you respect and understand what each other needs to do, which isn't always the same thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, being able to say, we're sorry, we've got empathy to show some of your feelings, which I think um, Merlin have done brilliantly. I think we've all watched that CEO and and really felt for him. Mm. He seemed to be having a difficult time. Well good, actually, because as a consumer, I want to see that he is upset by what's happened. And I'm not sitting there thinking, because it's all your fault, because we don't know. We have no idea.
1: Um, Sorry, Andrew, you were going to... Just very quickly, just to pick up on that point about emotion, I think, you know, that is very much a characteristic of social media. It's a very emotional and often emotive environment. And I think that, that the problem is, you know, if you as an organisation or a spokesperson dealing with the crisis don't demonstrate sufficient empathy and emotion, and social media is going to do it for you. And that is then going to spiral out of your control into a whole different direction. Yeah.
0: We're, we're talking about having the face face of the organisation and, and also you were saying about how um, Merlin CEO, which is Nick Barney, has, has had some um, you know really hard interviews. One of the ones that that I saw, which, which funny enough, I actually uh, came to my attention through Twitter. I didn't see it on the TV, but it was uh, uh, his interview with uh, Sky, uh, Sky's K. Burley, which has... Come in for quite um, an incredible amount of uh, comment across social media. Now, I, I agree with you know the comments already. I think I think Nick is has, has fronted the entire issue in an exemplary manner. I think he, he has been superb in, in how he's he's uh, presented their, the, the
1: situation. But, but I don't know if you've seen that particular interview. What if you have? What what did you think of that? I think my take on it was that the well, if you look at the you know if you look at the commentary on the interview, it seemed to be it seemed to be quite split. I think a lot of people were saying, well, he was going to get a tough interview, but he did a good job. But some people were saying, actually, that interview was too tough. It was clearly a very aggressive, hostile questioning environment. And I do wonder if it raises a sort of a bigger question in that, you know, the sort of the, tr- the traditional media outlets, of course, now are competing with so many more sources of information um, that perhaps, you know, that interview is, you know, was was too aggressive. Because at the end of the day, you know, yes, the guy needs to be held to account, but at the same time, you know, he's probably trying to communicate important information. For people who are affected by the fact that there the was the, the incident, but also that the park is going to be closed for the foreseeable future, I think it's you know it, there is this this sort of need now for for, for journalists to, to to sharpen and to tailor their output to get shared on social media. So perhaps that's something that we have to be aware of as communicators, in that you know questioning is going to get even more hostile mm-hmm. just because they're trying to get a you know they're trying to get a really exciting soundbite that can get shared. Okay, I, I felt
0: we couldn't do a, a show on crisis Common and ignore these campaigns given you know obviously how recent they are but as I said given the sensitivity of, of uh, some of the resulting circumstances particularly Alton Towers I didn't want to focus on them for too long but I do want to stress obviously our thoughts with with those um, who have been injured I, I therefore wanted to move on and look at a campaign away from current news and obviously we can switch attention uh, to probably one of the biggest issues maybe to, uh, to affect Stephen's uh, department of the FSA, uh, FSA seeing as we have Stephen here which would be the horse meat scandal, which oh. was a, few years, a couple of years ago now. Stephen, do you want to give us your take on all the various parties that were affected and how that all, all play, played out?
2: Yes, Abby, it was certainly the biggest incident crisis I've had to deal with in my time at the Food Standards Agency and also um, the first one where social media really played a significant role. So I'll come back to that in a moment. But in terms of the range of people involved, clearly our priority and our interest was in members of the public who were affected. But affected in a range of different ways in that some people thought the fact that horse was in their burger or lasagna, some people thought that was a joke and very amusing. Some people thought it was um, repulsive. Some people thought it was you know, simply fraud and were offended from that point of view. But the other big challenge of the horse meat crisis for us was that Um, It took on a life of its own and actually ended up running for about six, eight weeks as different organisations found, in some cases, horse, but in other cases, other traces of meat that shouldn't be there. And one of the most challenging aspects of that was, for example, a number of halal products, which turned out to contain um, small traces of pork. So therefore, clearly for those uh, people who it's key to their religion, that was a a matter of deep personal offence. And... The first case that came to light was actually when it was being served within a prison. So it wasn't even an environment where people were having choice about what they were eating. It was effectively being forced on them by the government. So a range of reactions from consumers, but also clearly had a huge impact on the food industry, whether that was retailers, um, people serving food in institutional settings like schools and prisons, and also restaurants as well. And then as it all developed... Uh, very interesting. It also became very much a a Europe-wide issue. Um, But as I said, the, the big take out from me was the effect that social media had. And in terms of looking at all those audiences, and for the first time, it was for us an incident where aspects of the incident were breaking on social media. And we were also finding that thing, which in, I guess, even two years on, we're now so used to, but whereas we were ready for consumers with concerns to ring up our helpline and we were advertised that number, of course, in greater volume, they were doing it on social media. But also it completely changed the dynamic because, yes, we did have a helpline. It got a steady number of calls and they were working to a script. But, of course, dealing with it in social media, um, as we've already been saying, the tone of your response has to change. And the mere fact that all those Q&As are taking place in a very public forum It just means, it again, it all takes on its own momentum and the skills that we needed as the communications team were tested. So
0: has that changed the way that that you prepare for um, campaigns and and plan for campaigns? Because I know, so for example, now you've got a a, a new campaign, and and I hope I get this right, um, based around uh, Camplobacter uh, in chicken, which according to your website is the most common cause of food poisoning in the UK. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine now with obviously uh, summer season barbecues and given anything like if I'm a, a classic example probably people not cooking their chicken very well at all so you've got a chicken challenge campaign that's been launched but it's a it's it's very much social media driven isn't it where uh, there's a website about it Do you, is that has how has that sort of like changed from a couple of years ago to how you're now approaching this activity
2: um exactly we've we're trying to do two things on Camp Alabactia, and your pronunciation was excellent. Well done. <laughs> so it's the biggest cause of food poisoning in the UK, and we think that industry, uh, producers of chickens and retailers, could be doing more to reduce levels. Uh, probably not going to be able to eliminate it, but certainly keen to reduce it, so we're Uh, publishing league tables on their performance and we're doing that very much and you're naming and shaming some of the supermarkets we'd like just to say we're putting information in the public domain but that's a classic thing which using traditional media works very well because uh, they love a story with some data with a league table and so on but it's equally we recognize that there are things that consumers can do to protect themselves so as you say when you're having your barbecue just think about how you're handling your chicken and how you're preparing it and we Traditionally, clearly going back pre social media, we'd have been trying to find innovative ways to get that as a PR message into mainstream media. But actually, we find with campaigns like this, social media provides us the route, particularly because the Chicken Challenge has been encouraging people to um, share their chicken recipes, talk about how they enjoy chicken. So we're able to put a positive on this, which in terms of dealing with some of the industry concerns is very important we want to say no no we're not trying to denigrate chicken we think it's a lovely food it's got lots of great merits so we're trying to get people to talk positively about chicken and share their stories but while doing that the chicken challenge invites them to ensure that they're going to handle it prepare it carefully and that should in time bring a public health benefit
0: and are the media using the the data that's coming out there in the way that you want to and how are the consumers responding to it
2: yes i mean it's working very well in that the ultimate effect is we're now seeing examples of retailers and chicken producers actually doing things taking steps within factories or within farms um, to do better hygienic processing and reduce the levels of campylobacter Um, meanwhile one of their big concerns about all this of course has been the effect on chicken sales we've not as yet seen any hard evidence that chicken sales have been affected so we seem to be able to take consumers with us on this um they're encouraging um, retailers to to take these steps um, one of the interesting challenges will we've got ahead of us is whether at some point in the future if some retailers are doing very good things and others not we might want to get to the position where we start advising consumers actually we think you should buy your chicken here rather than there we're not at that point yet but in terms of how we develop the campaign that's important and again both traditional and social media would have a role in that. Can I ask question? Of course. You uh,
3: are you finding then that I'm just quite interested in, you were saying you're sort of taking consumers with you. So are you finding that actually by placing it on social media, where it is, I always say more like, you know, having a chat down the pub, that you're actually finding consumers are asking questions of retailers. What are you doing? Are you following these rules? Are you almost getting people to kind of be a party to the campaign with you, to be partners in that?
2: There's some of that, but it's the thing that's particularly I've been pleased to see is people on social media having the debate, because there are people out there who say, I don't know why you're making such a fuss about this, because we've always known you shouldn't eat raw chicken. And other people are stepping in and saying, well, actually, I I used to think that, but actually I had a nasty dose of Campylobacter. So what we're seeing is consumers having those conversations amongst themselves about the rights and wrongs of this and the rights and wrongs of what we're doing and what they do and how it's affected them. And it's just that sharing that personal experiences without necessarily much intervention from us makes us feel that this and is I, I think that's
3: one of the great things we see social doing is they is putting those conversations you know that were at the school gate and and down the mm. pub and probably still are but also putting them into the public domain where where you do see people asking questions and actually other people coming in absolutely and answering them not always going back to the brand and i think that's you know that is real voice of the consumer isn't it power back to the to, to the public and I think that's really exciting. I yeah. think that's one of the really good things.
1: And I think as well, you know, often in a crisis, um, there is a, you know, there's a great need for, for understanding and information. And, and in fact, you know, if by you know, setting off a sort of a chain reaction of good information sharing to start with, the correct information gets shared and amplified, then you know, that makes the job of managing the crisis perhaps a bit easier sometimes. Yeah.
0: Well, does it, this might lead into a question, Andrew, for you in terms of uh, from a corporate reputation point of view. Are there lessons to learn from food crisis? You know, so we've heard about Campylobacter, horse meat. You know, there's a number of aspects of of your role in terms of crisis management, vulnerability auditing, uh, risk assessment, and obviously crisis planning. What's your your take on that?
1: Well, I think the interesting thing about the food industry is it's very, very uh, carefully regulated. Um, You know, there are very clear laws about when food is unsafe, what you have to do. Because of the way that the retail industry has been set up, there's a very intensive auditing regime, which means that food manufacturers uh, you know, have to do things in a very specific way and are checked very frequently. And I think it's that sort of thoroughness of not only being able to react when something happens, but also to be prepared, which is important. Because I think, you know, the thing is, you know, a lot of the time when we talk about crisis, we're talking about crisis communication. Something has happened. You know, how is the company actually dealing with the immediate aftermath and fallout? But in fact, you know, what's perhaps more important is being better prepared to anticipate the crisis. So, you know, we've developed this risk and crisis framework, which is goes all the way back to starting from a blank sheet of paper and saying, you know, what are your risks in the business? How do you capture those risks? How do you manage your issues? And quickly then, how do you join up your perception of greatest risk? with the way that you write procedures to deal with the crisis, uh, to be ready for something happening. And, of course, that has so many more dimensions now. There's not only the, 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 you know, the mechanics of, um, of, of dealing with a, the problem that has happened. There is the challenge of dealing with the social media communications, dealing with the traditional communications. You know, and, of course, you know, things like product recalls. There is so much that you have to do now in the correct order to, to be seen to be doing the right thing. So I think it's that sort of thoroughness of approach, that holistic approach, which is really important now.
0: So so would you say, um, well, I suppose it's obvious in terms of monitoring and training requirements that, that have evolved over the last couple of years now, have changed the whole way in terms of looking at, at the way social media can fuel a crisis situation?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think I mean the other very important part of um, of being well prepared, not only having good procedures, but also making sure that everyone understands them, that they're well-embedded and that they're well trained and that people rehearse what they have to do. I think the particular challenge that social media throws up, though is that you've often got people dealing with a situation who may be um, you know fairly technical in nature there may be some communications input but traditionally the sort of the integration of the social media side has perhaps been at a distance there may be a separate agency or a separate department that's actually focused more on using social media for outbound communication rather than being able to intelligently interpret what's coming in. What is also really interesting is you know, is the correct term monitoring or is it actually using what's happening on social media to extract insight and data? And I think this is the piece with a crisis. It's being able to, to look at what's happening and to intelligently observe what's really important to your stakeholders and the situation that you're dealing with. Yeah, that's something
2: I very much agree with, Andrew. It's how social media now allows us to listen better to what people are saying, because Traditionally, we'd have looked at the mainstream media and we'd have analysed the coverage, but probably then had to make some assumptions as to what messages and information people were taking out of that. But social media makes it so much easier to get that flavour of how people are feeling, how they're reacting. So going back to the horsemeat incident, as I said, throughout it, there was a significant number of people who were just posting jokes and amusing video clips, which from our point of view was just about OK, because one of the blessings of the whole thing was no one actually fell ill. Um, and therefore, but it gave us a good sense of you no. Know, people are still generally taking this fairly proportionally. So just being able to judge so much better with social media, how people are responding.
1: I think the great thing is social media can let you be the smartest person in the room when there's a crisis going on. You know, if you have the tools and the people trained to use them, then, you know, you really can be in a much more powerful position today mm-hmm. than you would have been in the, you know, the era before social okay. media.
0: Um, slight change of topic, but obviously still on, on, on uh, what, what we're talking about. Sarah, I'll come to you on this one. But be interested in all your, all your opinions on it. Do you have any experience of how journalists, and I include bloggers now in, in this as well, might use social media to pull their reports and stories together on a crisis? There may be crowdfunding there, uh, or crowdsourcing, I should say, their, their, their story details and sources, because it's an easy way to get comment. And, I, and I've actually seen more and more articles now where they will write a story, but the bulk of actually the co- the content certainly on on websites is where they've embedded various different tweets that you know f- could be from anyone commenting on the story. So they're kind of sourcing comment just from from Twitter.
3: So I think we've we've seen quite a lot of that happening, and I, I think I think there are, there are a number of aspects to this. I think journalists themselves are under a lot of pressure to engage with their audiences. So I have a, a number of friends who are. Um, journalists, some on um, national papers, some on regional papers, some columnists, some, you know, actually sort of jobbing reporters, or they, they'd be offended if I knew I'd describe them as such, but all under enormous pressure to engage with their audiences, both in sourcing and uh, uh, kind of guiding their copy as they're putting the story together or the column together, but also once it's been published. So actually, you know, it goes up on the Guardian website and then part of their job is to respond to all the comments. Mm-hmm. And I... I wonder whether that is a core skill of a journalist. You know, certainly one of my friends, who's an eminent columnist, absolutely hates it. Hates it. Hates it. Well, it's, hates it's it. It's
0: changed their role, isn't it? Because it's, it's you're not you're no longer just like you've submitted your copy. That's it. You're it now, it's and a live you're, story. If you're, you're a co-
3: highly paid columnist, you are paid to have an opinion. You're you're not paid to have a uh, to, to write a column. That's you're, you're not a. You're not an investigative journalist. You know, she has paid a lot of money because she has quite extraordinary views. That's why we all love reading her. But, um, you know, and that we all love reading the columnists because they challenge our thinking. We might completely disagree with what they're saying or completely agree with what they're saying. I think what they're now finding is they're sort of having to justify why they're putting those views up there. Or columnists are having a go at each other. And then you kind of end up... It's almost like you don't really want to be party t- to that. I think... Your question about the sourcing of stories, I think, is is very challenging for organisations because um, we all know there are less journalists. We all know there is less money in newspapers. We all know they're having to go online in all sorts of ways, not just through sourcing, but also in engaging in video content. And... I think when you're trying, when you're on the other side and you're trying to respond to that story and someone is saying, well, someone told me this because they tweeted it. You know, my time at the NHS was quite challenging from that aspect because as a communicator within the NHS, we are bound under the Caldecott Guardian rules, which mean, Russell, if it was a story about you or your family and you had not given us permission to talk about it, we couldn't talk about it. The fact that your next-door neighbour or your aunt might have tweeted something and then the journalist is saying, can you verify this? We can only verify that which which is already in the public domain, which is where I think my comments earlier about the importance of making friends in peacetime, the importance of having a really strong personality and profile in social media as an organisation or brand are really important because consumers are not stupid and if I'm reading an article about... A brand that I trust or or, you know a public sector organisation that I receive a service from and there's all sorts of comments in there from people on Twitter who may have goodness knows what kind of perspective they might be coming from actually I need to be able to see that within the round and I think that's where public relations professionals have a real opportunity to encourage their organisations and it's been great to hear about how the Food Standards Agency are, you know, encouraging those conversations amongst consumers because actually there's a lot of self-policing, I think, that yeah. goes on. Yeah.
0: Okay, this is a obviously a, a big hot topic um, and the CIPR social media panel is making crisis Communications—the topic of its next Hack Day. So, a little plug for the uh, for my colleagues there. Um, although the date still to be confirmed, it should be sometime in September. But interestingly, when we were discussing the whole uh, topic between ourselves recently, uh, one of my panel colleagues, uh, Stuart Bruce, um, made a really valid point. Um, and he said, and uh, I asked Stuart if I could quote him, and he said, yes. He said, we don't know. Um, we can't. Or we don't know. or can't talk about some of the best crisis communications case studies because. Um, given the fact that they were so successful, uh, they remained issues without ever descending into a crisis. So what's your thoughts on that? Isn't there, is there an argument that we could end up spending too much time looking at how not to do things, you know, based on disasters that we see play out across traditional and social media and, and and not learn from the best people who have kept potential crisis under control? Stephen, maybe you might want to pick that one up.
2: Yeah, certainly, though. There, undoubtedly, there were, there were always lessons to be learned from what went well and what went badly. In terms of things that have gone well... Uh, I think I'm right in saying the Department of Health's work on Ebola picked up an award at the um, CIPR yeah. award. So, and obviously, I'd be in a public health organization ourselves, work closely with them. And yeah, I think that right, quite rightly deserved an award because there was a huge amount of public anxiety around that. And there we saw Department of Health, NHS organisations, Public Health England, working very closely so that both the operation in terms of dealing with a small number of uh, UK nationals who had to come back to the UK for treatment. So the operations were dealt with incredibly smoothly. But also the message over a period of several months was consistent, clear, lots of information reassuring where it needed to be, but also acknowledging the risks. Uh, and I think that's, you know, quite rightly picked up an award because it was a textbook
0: example of making sure that uh, an issue didn't become a crisis. Yeah. OK. I'm conscious of time, and I mentioned the, the CIPR's uh, social media panel hack day, hack day just before. So actually, this is probably a good time to to take a break from our discussion on crisis comms. We will come back to it in a second. But I, I said at the top of the show, I, I recorded an interview at the, uh, at the previous hack day which was all on the topic of social storytelling. And there I caught up with another panel colleague of mine, uh, Louise Bartashek, who is Director of Media Relations at BNY Mellon. So we're in the middle of the uh, latest CIPR social media panels uh, hack day. This one is on social storytelling. And I'm joined uh, by one of my social media panel colleagues, uh, Louisa Bartashek, um, and she is Director of Media at BNY Mellon. Hi Louisa. Hello. Um, so we've just finished the uh, the tweet chat that um, we were running for an hour which uh, brought up quite a few interesting uh, topics and I just wanted to um, grab a few minutes with Louisa just with a uh, pick up on a few of those things that we, we would discuss. First question is why is storytelling so important not just from a, a, a social media perspective but to PR in general?
4: Well, I, th- I think storytelling is it, one of the most powerful techniques that we have as human beings to actually communicate with each other. Um, you know, our, our brains are wired to remember and recall stories. If you give somebody a list of facts, they're less likely to remember all those facts than if you d- delivered that information in a, in a story, which is much more compelling. And that, and that story can either be uh, you know, told verbally, written, or through a picture. Um, you know, we all, we all love a good story.
0: So you work in um, in the world of court comms. Can you? Think of uh, an example where storytelling, you know, can help an organisation. Let's say in the dry world of financial reporting.
4: Hmm. Well, so if, if you if you're looking at financial reporting, and I guess if you're uh, an investor, an analyst, or financial journalist looking at the numbers, the numbers do tell a story. You know, that they, they they do stack up, and they once analysed, they give a position the organisation. But what they don't do is show the human side of the company or um, how those numbers maybe came to be. So where storytelling can be incredibly useful is connecting the dots between the numbers and the organization. So uh, I'm trying to think of an example. If an organization is saying that it's invested or its employees have donated X amount of money uh, to charities around the world, um, and they're demonstrating that because they want to be seen as a good corporate citizen, you know, CSR is a, is a big deal for a lot of organizations, then there's the number. And that number might be interesting in itself, but what it doesn't really say is, well, how did that in that financial um, donations? How did that change people's lives? Why did why did the company do it? So, where the storytelling can be really powerful is showing how that money might have been raised. So, using the faces within an organisation, the people, because um, people connect with people, not with companies. Um, so, what you know, what what activities did they do, and also how did it change people's lives? So, are, are you able to share stories? Where maybe something happening in a particular country or a particular community, and it's really made a difference. You,
0: you, it's interesting. You're talking about people connecting with people. Earlier in the uh, in the tweet chat, you posted something about. Uh fact that organizations need to treat their customers or clients as an audience. Mm. Um, do, do you want to expand on that in terms of t- Yeah, yeah. I mean,
4: it's um it's, it's an interesting concept I mean, one of, one of the reasons why I feel like that is this take a look at the entertainment principles. Um, so which is a very different uh, way of thinking. You know, if you're if you work in PR or marketing or sales and you you're, you're obviously there to try and sell a product or to sell something and the, you're often the language that you use is the consumer the client the customer and that's all really valid but I think when you take that approach you automatically or uh, uh, maybe your behavior is I'm trying to sell and when you're dealing on social people don't want to be sold to on social media yes they go they might be um, they might go on there to uh, for entertainment they might go on there for information but they really don't like being directly sold to um, and it comes across as a, a little bit corporate and could be off-putting so uh, another way of doing that is Is to think of your target audience as an audience, like broadcasters do, and think about what they want to hear and and receive. So instead of thinking about what you want to sell, it's what do they want to hear. So you still you're still looking at the same process. You might be trying to raise awareness of a particular product or event or whatever it might be, but you're creating content that they are really interested to consume and and more importantly share with audiences. And
0: I know in terms of what you're saying there, and you've taken that kind of concept because you've just recently launched a like a newsroom a a new style newsroom on your own on the bny Mellon site do you want do you want to just sort of talk about that just yeah
4: i'd be delighted to i mean we're absolutely thrilled uh with our new newsroom um just very briefly i mean the newsroom was launched in february so it's still very early days and um historically our organization like a lot of corporations We had a press centre, and uh, I I used to refer to it as the the place where press releases go to die, (laughs) which, you know, a dusty mausoleum of old press releases. You know, effectively, so as PR people, you issue a press release, it's gone to the journalist. then what do you do? Oh, let's put it on our website. And then nobody really ever goes to see it again. And, you know, what we've been trying to think about is how... uh, how how do we reach our target audience today? Things are changing you know the the rapid acceleration of smartphone usage around the world is really changing consumer behaviors. People are buying less and less magazines, less and less newspapers they're they're on social they're looking at different types of apps and all sorts of things so I think as PR people, we need to evolve our behaviours, just like publishers are needing to evolve and change their business models. So for us, with the with the with the newsroom, the idea behind that was it's creating more digital, but more channels in general, for the PR team to be able to communicate stories and information about BNY Mellon, but also about the industries that we operate in, uh, the markets around the world, sharing information that we think is important to all of our external stakeholders. So it's, it's about going back to grassroots. PR, at the end of the day, stands for public relations. And I think a lot of people have forgotten that. It's not press relations. Yeah. And, and that's why we created the newsroom, which... Um, yes, there are press releases, but there's also uh, picture stories with just say, a caption, short story. There's increasingly the amount of video, uh, audio, podcasts, um, infographics, all sorts of things. So it's, when one when, uh, of our media relations team are approached by the business or they spot something and say, right, what is the PR campaign? Historically, it would be let's write a press release. Whereas now we've got more tools.
0: But do you think in your in your sector in particular, because uh, a lot of what we've discussed so far in today's hack day and storytelling is very much about consumer brands you know we, we've we've seen examples of airlines of uh, drinks uh, firms um, you know uh, you know but within the finance sector itself or in the corporate world is there is there a resistance do you think to to this kind of
4: approach well I th- resistance is an interesting word i think for one financial services is challenging because it's heavily regulated. So if you, for example, um, you're trying to have a rapid response movement to news, so you really want to behave in real time, so whether it be putting information on one of your social channels or, or onto our newsroom, but the reality is a lot of what you do in financial services has to be seen by a lawyer by compliance people, and that that slows things down. So resistance is a a challenging word. It's more of a cultural challenge is probably the best way of describing it. But certainly myself and all of my colleagues in the PR team, we're working really, really closely with our partners in in the legal departments and the compliance departments around the world to help educate them about what we're trying to achieve and to help them get comfortable with that journey that we're going on so that we are able to knock down some of these walls or at least make the road a little bit smoother. Okay. Than it is today.
0: Well well finally let's let's just finish off in, in terms of like my last point, I suppose, or our last question is what, what would you see as the key or, or what, what do you believe is the, the key priority when it comes to storytelling for a brand or an organization?
4: <sighs> the key priority. I I, I I kind of go back to the point about audience. I really think that you have to understand that your, your audience, I mean, it's quite easy to sit there and you have those strategy planning meetings, you think, what are our brand values? What are we trying to achieve here? And I think if you if you try and build stories around that, you're not really thinking about the end the end user, if you will. I think if, if you base it on the principle that you're listening to your audience, so what are their frequently asked questions? Uh, what are the issues that they're talking about? What are the popular conversations? All those types of trends, really tap into listening to that and then connect that to your objectives as an organisation and then somewhere in the middle that's where you start to create the content which therefore is, a, is going to be a compelling and appealing to the audience that you're trying to reach but at the same time meets your organization's objectives so you don't stray away from that.
0: Excellent. Um, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Sarah, Louise finished off that interview talking about the importance of listening to your audience, questions they're asking, issues they're discussing um, and then creating the appropriate content in response bringing it back to our topic of discussion that we're, we're talking about in the studio today so you know as a crisis unfolds the social media monitoring must go into overdrive we've talked earlier in fact about the amount of comments on on alton tower's facebook page for example there must be a huge level of activity taking place both indirectly and then obviously targeted um, at the organization in question how can they possibly be expended expended to respond to everything and how do you monitor and prioritise what actions to take.
3: So I don't think people necessarily expect you to respond to everything. And I I think that a a brand that did that would would get itself into, I mean, you'd you'd end up employing people full time to do that and nothing else but that 24 hours a day, Mm. seven days a week through a crisis. And frankly, there are more important things that need to be done. I think one should respond to points of misinformation. So having worked in the railway, you know, you'd be in the middle of massive disruption. You know, I've stood painfully at um, Pancras Station Kings Cross Station Farringdon Station with hundreds of thousands of people trying to get home and an inability to achieve that and actually that's where social media could be enormously helpful so just repeating information how to get home safely or in the case of, of um, you know Alton Towers these, this is when we're closing this is when we're opening please don't come today I think that kind of information must be sent I I think where your social media responders for want of a better description are based is really key So often I think those people are, um, as was said earlier, kind of pushing stuff out, perhaps putting out information rather than listening. And I think that's where public relations departments and communications department comes into their own in a crisis, because we're very good at listening and we're very good at responding. and We're very good at doing that quickly. And I think so bringing those people within your department, even if they usually sit in customer service or marketing or advertising, whatever, get them into, you know, wherever your command base is for your crisis, which is usually in the in the PR director's office, in my experience, and kind of manage that proactively. I, I think relying on really good monitoring by a third party, forget it. You know, that's going to be delayed. It's going to take time. Yes, it will be important later, maybe after you've got through the first couple of days to kind of see where the themes are. But at the beginning, I think take control, have a personality, correct information, and get out reassuring messages about the fact that you are in control and that you are taking responsibility and i think you can do all of that without getting yourself into any legal difficulty okay
0: we've had so much to to talk through that this is uh this is definitely becoming our longest podcast of the series so far so uh, congratulations for uh sticking with me on this um I therefore like to finish off today's show just by asking each of you uh, to perhaps name a brand or a recent case study or, or something you know that you've, you've worked on, even that our listeners can go and research a little more themselves, um, but that gives some you know some best practice on understanding social media's role in crisis communication. Stephen, let's start with you. The example jumped to mind. It's interesting, Sarah, you were just talking about railways and those, not
2: crises, but those difficult mornings or evenings they have. And just last week, um, I travel on Southeastern, and it was one of those difficult mornings, signal problems, cancellations, um, and lots of traffic going through Twitter with complaints. And there was one specifically where I followed the exchange, and uh, someone said... Not only am I standing up on a packed train, but the heating's on and it's early June. And very quickly, Southeastern came back with, which train are you on? And he said, it's a 750-something or other from somewhere. And within a couple of minutes, the response came back, thanks for letting me know. I'm going to let the driver know and ask him to turn the heating off. And I thought, wasn't that fantastic? Because it was a rapid response. It was very personalised and they were delivering action.
1: Very good. Andrew? Um, I think the... um The, the the tragic incident that the German Wings airline suffered uh, recently, at the time they, they I think they mounted a very human response in many ways to what was just, uh, you know, almost un, completely um, devastating uh, and unforeseen event. At the time, they they have a coloured logo. They made the logo sort of in grey shades. They gave over the whole of their website to situation updi- updates. But I look back today, and while the website has gone back to being you can book your flight here, if you scroll down, there's a sort of a little discrete area that just has the flight number, and they've got a hashtag, hash inDeepSorrow, which people are using on Twitter. But they've also got a website which has inDeepSorrow in the in the URL, and it's basically just like a place where you can, you can post a memory, you can just add a message. And it just, you know, it, it seems as actually sort of quite a tasteful and human yeah. thing to do, you know, an incident that's going to reverberate for years yeah. ahead. I'm not. That is interesting. I've not not seen anything like that before.
0: Sarah, let's finish with you.
3: So I think um, in my typical school, I'd like to have two. Uh, I think one is those things you're, that... You're the
0: president <laughs> of the CIPR. You, you can, <laughs> I'm allowed. You can pull rank. Um,
3: so, I think uh, one of those is those things that we will never know about. So, you know, it's interesting that the next hack day is all going to be about crisis comms. And I think it would be good uh, to take up Stuart's challenge, Stuart Bruce's challenge, and to see whether we could get some comms people to talk about, if they can't talk about the specifics, to talk about the process of those things that you know, when you're sat in the boardroom, or you're looking at the, at the papers, or you've got the briefing from the client that you know are going to be a bad news. And how do you influence that? How do you Actually, some of the things I'm most proud of are those times when I've actually influenced the decision to say, actually, we're not we're not going to do that thing that we first thought might be a really good idea. And I think that's where the role of a senior person within an organisation or, or advising an agency, uh, oh, sorry, advising a client through an agency really comes into their own. So it would be good if we could, through this podcast, put a kind of call out for people who've done Absolutely. that yeah, and got me. that experience. That would be great. I think the thing for me at the moment, and for those who are tweeting and following this on Twitter, they might think... I've got some horrific spelling error uh, in my Twitter handle, but actually is the uh, National Blood Donation Campaign. I spotted that um, this morning. Taken the two A's out of my. Uh, name. If anyone's got any O's, you need to take those out too. And actually, they're doing it through huge number of different media. Um, so uh, through the regular um, broadcast media, through the regular print media, online, and for me, the thing that made my heart leap as a as a lifelong blood donor was seeing British Gas vans who have taken out the A from British yeah. Gas. And I think it's just to highlight this week in particular that blood stocks in the UK are running really, really low. And uh, if you're an A-type, an A-type, get in there and give some blood.
0: Excellent. Nice way to finish. Thanks to all three of you for joining me today. Um, so Andrew Vincent of uh, Instinctive Partners, uh, Stephen Humphries of the FSA, and of course, our very own CIPR president, Sarah Pinch of Pinchpoint Communications. Uh, thanks also again to the team here at Marketeers uh, 4DC for hosting us. Of course, anyone interested in finding out more on this topic of crisis comms, the CIPR uh, runs a number of training courses and regular workshops um, across the year, details of which are on the CIPR's website. Also, if you're interested in getting involved in these podcasts, just drop me a line on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith. Thanks for listening and goodbye.